Hello everyone, I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. And welcome to episode 17 of Rolling Release, our weekly podcast about the perpetual improvement of Linux. How are you doing this week, Richard? Pretty good. I've right, been good learning to... about how floating point numbers are encoded in binary in my glasses, and it's kind of confusing. Oh, yeah. but... <laughs> Sound, sounds confusing. Uh, it's good to have you yeah. back. We had our solo episode last week. We got some good feedback on that. Uh, but we do have a two-person show again this week. We got a lot of news here, and I think we'll go ahead and just jump right in. What do you say? All right. All right. So our first story this week, bad news for users of Top Icons Plus it just got discontinued. So this is a GNOME extension that basically, um, GNOME had that really crappy system tray in the bottom left of the screen that kind of popped out when you're in your activities menu and you click on a little arrow to open it. Um, Type Icons Plus added system notification icons to the top right of your screen just as part of the GNOME bar because 90% of that bar is blank and so it's like what's the point of having all that blank space there when we could put notification icons there so yeah, Top Icons Plus did that obvious thing, and a lot of people use it. It was one of the most popular GNOME extensions that was in use. So yeah, that got discontinued. Now, Richard, were you on the show when the last plugin that got discontinued got discontinued? I don't believe so, because I, th- I don't remember it, and you said the second week in a row. All right, so, so yeah, th- this think... is the second yeah. week in a row that a popular GNOME extension has been discontinued, and the developer has said it's because of GNOME that they discontinued it. Um, and I, th- I think this is kind of pointing to a trend here. So, like I said, this extension has proven popular with GNOME Shell users, and Top Icon Plus developer uh, Focian says that he is going to... Is, am I saying that right? Focian? Yes, it sounds right. right. <laughs> he says he is going to take some distance with the development of this extension by pausing his work on it. Um, he cites Ubuntu's decision to ship the case status notifier extension in Ubuntu 17.10 as one reason as well as the attitude of GNOME developers toward both the API Top Icons Plus uses and their attitude toward the extension itself as his motivation for the decision. Uh, This is a direct quote from him. The GNOME project does not give a censored about it and made it public. Um, He also said Ubuntu, after making a survey and seeing that users wanted, this is my little input, but remember Ubuntu made that desktop survey um, and they yeah. saw users wanted this extension, they decided to, instead of using this extension, make their own that does the exact same thing and ship that instead. So I guess this developer <laughs> is partway miffed that Ubuntu is just like not using theirs, but just doing their own because that's what Ubuntu does uh, these days. And then they're also partway upset with how the GNOME project is viewing their extension. Um, he says, as of now, the GNOME API that they use is buggy and incomplete, so it's impossible to make a reliable extension or really enhance it. Um, and they say it will also never be fixed because the API they use is being deprecated in future versions of GTK because the GNOME people are trying to get rid of status notification icons altogether. Um, so yeah, the developer suggests that users who were using the extension should either move on and enjoy GNOME shell as is or switch their desktop environment. And yeah, the, if you're using if you're using this extension, you can also use case status notifier, which Ubuntu is using for 17.10. So Richard, this is pretty significant, like I said, because last week I talked about how the GNOME global menu extension got discontinued, and the reason for that was because the GNOME developers were piece by piece removing the API bits that were making that possible, and just generally not caring when the developer of that extension was trying to keep it working. They were just 
breaking it with no regard, and the extension developer for that said, you know what? Gnome clearly doesn't give a crap about this. They keep breaking all the APIs I'm using. I'm just going to discontinue this extension. Um, so now we've got another, even more popular extension going down the same road. What do you think about that? I mean, I don't think it's a good sign for Gnome. I feel like I'm wondering kind of why they're not paying more attention to stuff that seems so crucial. And also, I mean, he was just calling them out, basically saying, just switch to another desktop environment to the people if you want right. <laughs> this functionality. If you want status <laughs> Which, uh, icons. He's like pretty upset, and rightfully so. Right. And I mean, I don't this know. This is a feature that's kind of expected. I mean, right. almost every desktop environment has the ability to have a system tray. Yeah, Gnome's been trying to ditch it for a while now. They've actually, Gnome has filed bugs. People, Developers, I don't know if you knew about this, but this pissed me off when I found it out. Um, a while back, there were Gnome developers going into completely unrelated, non-Gnome projects on GitHub and filing bugs about the fact that they use status icons because Gnome doesn't use status icons. And they were trying to get people to remove them from the projects. And, you know, the most of the project Why? maintainers were like, what about all the people who aren't using GNOME who still use status icons? And GNOME was like, well, we don't use them, so you should get rid of them. It's, GNOME is complete, <laughs> they, the GNOME people are just self-centered and, you know, not great designers either, in my opinion. Because what, what space, you know, you're getting rid of these icons in your top bar, and what are you replacing it with? What precious thing do you need to put there you're not putting anything there it's just a black bar across the top of your screen yeah. with nothing if you were if you were gonna like reclaiming that for something else i guess yeah that you'd have a little more ground to stand on if you just got rid of the bar completely but you have no ground to stand on if you yeah. just like we're gonna they, keep the bar so that space is lost they say oh we're gonna the, remove the icons the, the icons look and bad not support them. yeah it's <laughs> it's just i yeah this is why i don't use gnome um functionality yeah. over design yeah, well, design over functionality is what is what Gnome is kind of doing. But, yeah, now, th th I, this is kind of also not yeah, really... Yeah, no, I meant I support functionality Right, you support design. that. Right, yeah. I do as well, and that's probably why we're KDE users um, for now. Now, the OMG Ubuntu article says, they said in both of these um, articles about the discontinued extensions, as we mentioned many times before, open source projects do not truly die, as their source code is available for anyone at any time to fork and continue. I think that that is actually kind of not valid in this case. I don't think that's. I don't think you can just keep parroting that line and saying, "Oh, it's okay. We're disabling. We're discontinuing extensions left and right. It's open source, so it's not actually dead." I think that's a pretty stupid thing for OMG Ubuntu to be saying because someone still has to continue supporting it. Right, and if GNOME is removing the APIs that are making these work. Then, then you can't, you can't really fork do it. Anymore. The code's right. worthless. Like yeah, the code doesn't follow the an API that's no longer existed, then 50% of the code isn't doing anything anymore. Right. So, yeah, I, I do think that we need... To, I think this is a problem with GNOME. Um, you know, if you're wanting advanced features like status icons and universal <laughs> global menus... Um, I never thought that was advanced, but... <laughs> but, yeah, for now, Ubuntu is going to... It kind of tells us something, that GNOME is saying that they're removing icons status icons are out but ubuntu 17.10 is going to ship with a plugin by default that does the same thing as this once again that adds status icons the fact that it's called k status notifier kind of makes me think that it might be using some kde code but i don't know for yeah, sure Yeah, i was wondering about that i was trying to look it up earlier but yeah. i got distracted <sighs> 
But yeah, that's what's going on there. So if you're using GNOME and you rely heavily on extensions, you might want to start weaning yourself off of extensions or looking into alternatives to GNOME. Um, if you're using GNOME and you don't use any extensions, then I guess you can keep on doing what you're doing because that's exactly what the GNOME people want you to do. Um, our next story here, Brackets 1.11 is released. Brackets is Adobe's um, HTML and CSS editor, and it is, quote, fully supported on Linux. Now, Richard, uh, you said you don't use Brackets, right? Yeah, I haven't used it. Yeah, now we talked about Brackets in an earlier show, and I do use Brackets. Um, I use it for... I don't use it for, like, nerdofthestreet.com development because that's kind of too complicated for Brackets to handle. Um, but I do use it for client websites that I'm making mostly in static HTML and CSS um, and a little bit of, like, PHP. But, yeah, I make those kind of small, just a few page websites in Brackets. And I think Brackets is a great option for those because something like Aptana Studio um, is a lot heavier and it doesn't have live preview. Brackets has a live preview functionality um, with Chromium, and I think that's a really nice touch. Now, Brackets 1.11, like I said, is the first release to be fully supported on Linux according to Adobe. Uh, they say, quote, the Linux build is at par with what you get on Mac and Windows. Now, I'm not entirely sure about that because I'm going to open up Brackets right here, and we'll see if the stream catches this. All right, I'm clicking Brackets. Click. All right, so here is brackets right here, and I'm going to try and resize this window, okay? I click and start dragging. Oh, it actually worked. All right. <laughs> well, maybe it actually did get fixed in the update. And that right after I updated brackets, I opened it up because I used to have an issue where every time I opened it and tried to resize it, it would crash. But it's actually working now. Um, so, yeah, this is what brackets looks like as a little bit of a reminder. And you can see I'm running 1.11. I've got it from the AUR right now. The X button, you have to click twice to get out of it. Um, that's still a bug on Linux. But the new 1.11 release also gains complete support for ECMA Script 6, which I know ECMA Script is the actual name for JavaScript. When did we start calling it ECMA Script again? I don't know. Because <laughs> like that's a trend. Like I've, I've seen other people start doing that as well. I, I wasn't even aware of this trend. Yeah. I mean, you already probably knew that JavaScript is just a nickname. ECMA script is the, technically the, the language you're using. Now, I actually looked it up, and JavaScript is an implementation of ECMA script, I think. Um, but yeah, I've seen more people calling it ECMA script and not JavaScript recently. Just kind of threw me for a loop. But um, yeah, it's got complete support for that. So you can use this for client-side scripting as well, in addition to HTML and CSS, which is what I normally use it for. I think it's because the apparently the 8th edition is released in 2017 of, EMC, of ECMA script, so e that might be the reason why it's doing it, because it's now a new standard out. Okay. 8th edition? Yeah. What's the 6th? I don't know. <laughs> does right, well, that one's the from 2015. Um, brackets 1.11 does also include some bug fixes and improvements, such as not crashing on Linux when you open it up and try resizing it, like I just showed. Um, I would definitely recommend it for if you're, like I said, just for simple projects. Not going to be doing like content management system developments with this, but simple HTML and CSS, like I said, hugely uh, useful having that live preview feature for me, especially. All right, and if you want to read the complete release notes, you can do that on Adobe's GitHub page, and you can also look at the pull requests that went into making it better on Linux. They link in that changelog.
Our next story is about the Ubuntu dock. Uh, Richard, did you want to talk about that? Yeah, so I was going to take this article. But um, basically, the main thing in this article is that the, um, in Ubuntu dock, we'll have progress bars and badge counts in Ubuntu 17.10. Mm-hmm. And this kind of is related to the previous article with the fact that when they switched to GNOME, since GNOME didn't support the stuff, everyone yeah. was assuming it was going to be lost. Mm-hmm. But right before, right before they freeze the user interface kind of packaging, yeah, they so- put in um, the Ubuntu. They put in this package um, and basically got it in just in time for the Ubuntu 17.10 release. Mm-hmm. And um, um, they have a couple screenshots. The one at the top is the new one, what it'll look like at 17.10, and the one at the bottom is what it looked like in the old Unity. Um, okay. And I actually kind of like the new one at the top more because the progress bar is at the bottom yeah. as opposed to the middle, which I thought was kind of weird always when it was in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of looks there's nicer. Not a whole lot, there's not a whole lot to this article really other than it's, a, it's pretty nice they finally actually got this into gnome and it kind of is already says that gnome and ubuntu might be at odds with each other because clearly they already seem to have different philosophies in the terms of their design aesthetic and what they want to have and what the users should have Mm -hmm. um yeah i did think it was interesting that they were slipping this in right before that freeze like you said it's surprisingly late in my opinion i mean this is kind of i i wouldn't necessarily call it like a core feature but it's pretty important i would think to people they give a few examples of uh what you might use this for firefox download progress is one of them also unread messages in not only email clients like thunderbird but also chat apps like telegram and skype i would imagine people who use telegram or skype would really use those those you know number badges for how many unread messages you have a lot um kind of surprising they waited uh this long to add that in but cool yeah. that they got it in because kind of everyone thought it wasn't going to make it i would imagine yeah if i was if i was using unity and getting ready to switch to this i would have definitely been panicking if i cared about this feature at this point so um yeah so yeah nice that they have that and yeah i really i do think ubuntu is looking really nice like i'm actually tempted to try stock ubuntu um of course then i'm using gnome with a bunch of extensions that may or may not stop working in the next couple of releases, but we'll see what happens there. Anything else you wanted to say about it or were you done? I'm pretty much done, yeah. All right, and our next story is that Linux phone that we've been talking about, that crowdfunding campaign for the Librem 5 by Purism. It passed 50% of its goal this week and it still has close to a month left. Um, I think this is a pretty good thing, Richard, don't you think? Yeah. This is pretty awesome. I think it's a good sign. I'm hoping it'll actually make it. Yeah, the time of this writing, which this writing was Wednesday this week, Roughly 51% funded on this thing, which, by the way, they were asking for $1.5 million in this crowdfunding campaign, and they've gotten $777,000 already. The campaign has uh, 26 days from this time of writing, and just as a reminder, if that full $1.5 million is not raised by the end date, Purism does not get any of the money, and none of the backers will be charged. Um, so we're definitely hoping that it goes through here at the time of this recording of this show, we are at $879,144. That is 58% funded, and they still have 22 days to go. I could see this either being funded or not. Like, I'm actually really... Yeah, it's close. It is going to be close. I'm excited about it. Um, and yeah, as a reminder, you can jump in for $20 if you just want to help the project or for a working phone delivered estimated January 2019. It is a way off, uh, but it's 600 bucks for a working phone. So yeah... Um, definitely consider, just wanted to throw that in there. That's the progress on that. Yeah. Um, there are so many, have you seen some of the crap that gets crowdfunded these days, Richard? 
Like, not in a while, but I is... saw a YouTube series that was like bad, bad pro um, products and crowdfunding. So this is really something. That... I think that you and I agree. This is something that deserves to be crowdfunded. Like this, yeah. this deserves to reach its goal. Uh, Rooster Teeth asked for two hundred fifty thousand dollars on Kickstarter this week for a board game, and they they reached it in less than twenty four hours. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars to make a freaking board game. And that's like something that, you know, this phone is going to change the marketplace of phones and give people an actual third option if they don't want to use locked down Google or Apple systems. Um, and we are struggling to fund this. But, you know, a multi-million dollar company who doesn't need to crowdfund anything because it has capital can ask its customers for $250,000 and get it overnight. Um, yeah, it's really a weird state we're in with crowdfunding with what gets funded and what doesn't but yeah, you know I mean, um, what was it the people with Cards Against Humanity like got a bunch of money just to dig a giant hole yeah, well they're doing so. it just to point out how silly it is yeah. like that's, they are making the same point that I am right now, they're just doing it in a much yeah. bigger and more effective way um, but yeah that is where we're at with purism so if you're looking to crowdfund anything this should be what you're crowdfunding and remember it for 600 bucks you will get the phone um granted it'll take a year while they research and develop and you know make it good but yeah i'm still i haven't crowd i haven't backed it yet i i don't know if i will or not but i really want to i just don't know if i have the money for it right now um, as a yeah, I think student. I'll back it. I'm not going to be able to back it for a phone, but I'll try and yeah. back it just to give them a little money because yeah. I support them. It's at least something. Yeah, and that, the new model that they've got, the renders, look really nice. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at with that. All right, well, our next story is Firefox 56 has been released. Of course, everyone's still waiting for Firefox 57 coming out next month. Um, actually, no, it's coming out November, which would be two months from now until tomorrow, and then it'll be next month. Um, anyway, hey Richard, have you gotten Firefox 56 yet? Not yet, actually. I haven't gotten a chance to update. I think I've got should. it. Yeah. Not a whole lot new in this one. Uh, obviously, 55 came with a lot of big performance improvements. 57 is going to come with even more performance improvements, plus a new UI. Uh, 56, kind of just a filler release. Not a whole lot there. It does include a new search function in the settings area, which I can definitely see being useful. Um, I know in Chrome and Chromium, I have to use the search function because it's organized horribly in their settings. I can't find anything. Firefox, I haven't had a big problem with finding things, but um, especially because they do have a lot of settings, which I consider a good thing. Being able to search through them is nice. If you just want to find out how to change your homepage or change the new tab page, you should be able to search for that kind of thing. Also new is the Firefox screenshots feature. That was in the Firefox pilot program, I think, a few weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, now it's interesting. Actually, I've used Firefox 56 then. Just Windows, it has it up because I remember cl right clicking and seeing the take screenshot. Thing. Right. Well, they pushed it out at, to some people on 55, but then 56 oh, is okay. just a feature in 56. Um, now, oh, okay. they pushed this thing because on Linux, um, when you're in Wayland, you don't have to worry about having a global screenshot function. You can still take screenshots of web pages with this extension. Um, however, I don't see anything about taking full page screenshots. Do you know if that's a feature in this? No, because I haven't gotten to try it yet then, but... Just looking at, like, the pictures online, which these are very informative pictures here on their website. Um, but looking at the pictures of the extension, I can't see anything about full page extensions, but, um, but yeah, I would like that feature if they don't already have it. 
Now, they are also borrowing a feature from Apple's Safari and Google Chrome. Um, those two browsers do not autoplay media located in a background tab, um, such as if you open up YouTube in a background tab or if you trying to think of how this would work here. So if you if you middle click and it opens in a new tab, it would not start autoplaying the media until you switch to it, I guess. Is that how you read yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm assuming. All right, and then this is the final release to support legacy add-ons in Firefox. 57 is only going to have the web extensions, which while they are newer, safer, and more resource efficient, they're also not going to be as featureful depending on what exactly you're doing. Yeah. Um, so you can at least know what it's accessing on your browser. Right, they will have proper permissions, yeah. Um, so yeah, Firefox 56 is available for Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, and Firefox 57 with the new Quantum UI is going to be out in November. Cannot wait. Um, TechCrunch also had an article about this that covers it from less of a Linux perspective and more of a just general perspective. If you haven't caught our previous shows on the new Firefox, then you should check that article out. And our next story is NextCloud introducing end-to-end -end encryption. Richard, you're talking about this, right? Yes. So this was a long article. I have a lot highlighted. They went into a lot of detail. Yeah. But basically, they're announcing that they're doing end-to-end -end encryption. That's also they call client-side encryption. Yeah. And basically, it's a very dense article. There's a lot of information in it. So mm -hmm. they describe, they said that this is going to keep the server from seeing the data while still also facilitating syncing between devices and sharing with other users. It doesn't compromise security by using browser-based encryption. So there will be no browser-based encryption, but you still are able to access it from the browser. It's just that PHP script actually is responsible for decrypting it, and then it sends it over HTTP yeah, or, more on that or later. SSL. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, it also features secure key management, so users don't have to swap passwords. The idea is basically it's like really user-friendly. There's not really anything you have to do or remember as a user, and it doesn't require re-encrypting the files or in order to add or remove privileges. So basically, you don't have to re-upload or anything. It can just change them on the fly. They also wanted to really like make this not just like a small thing they implemented, but really to do it in depth. And so they have the um, enterprise kind of capabilities, like offline recovery and hardware security module support as well. So basically, they use a device-generated passcode, which can be recovered from any device the user owns or a piece of paper. So in order to get locked, to lose your data, you'd have to lose every device you own in the piece of paper the code is written on yeah. and also not be the admin, because the admin can also do a super recover. Only but if you've got that feature enabled. Yeah. That is not by default. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the article mentions that more later. But basically, they released, in at the time of writing this, which was September 27th, they'd released a proof of concept that had a working Android client and the server-side key handling code, which was PHP, mm -hmm. and they had a link to the repo, and as well as work-in-progress code for both desktop and iOS clients. And they're kind of trying to get feedback on it from the wider security community to make sure that everyone that they view this as secured, good, and kind of do an audit. And um, they're officially, though, announcing it as a feature of NextCloud 13. So they have kind of decided that they're bound to this. They're going to do it. And yeah. it is, I mean, this is official. So yeah. in the what is different section, they kind of explain the kind of issues with doing it because there's a lot of compromises right now. Web interfaces are usually unavailable or there's a security compromise issue with browser side decryption. So they basically decide to not do that at all and just have the server end up decrypting it through PHP and then sending it. And um, that was pretty much all that in that section. They said that basically it works on a per folder level. 
and it's a fully secure key management. So with something they're calling cryptographic identity protection, which is the nickname for what they're the system they're implementing for it. And um, basically users can access their data on any device. This is kind of just repeating some of the stuff from before, but right. yeah, you can access it on any client. And um, they also keep a complete audit log, which I thought was interesting. They managed to keep a full log without actually having to compromise any of the end-to-end -end encryption parts. So you'll still be able to see everything that happened without the server. There'll be a record on the server of everything that happened without actually having to wind up the files like being compromised in any other way. And there's the optional offline administrator recovery key mm -hmm. and support for a hardware security module. And then, so they, under the unique features, I highlighted some of the things. They use yeah. the 12 dictionary words, so it's really easy just to write your backup keys down somewhere and just like put them in a safe. So it's physical, you have a physical copy that's safe as well. Right, which is very similar to yeah. uh, um, when you make a Bitcoin wallet and it gives you the 12 words. And if I understand correctly, those 12 words actually are your private key, right? Yeah. That's just a method of getting a very that's long private like key implies, that's easy yeah. for the user to write down, yeah. Something that was easier for a computer to understand. And then basically, sharing revoking doesn't require users to change to create or enter passwords, and there's no need to re-encrypt, which I thought was a really cool way of doing it. And I feel like that's pretty groundbreaking because I feel like most stuff hasn't been able to do that. So basically, you can change permissions without ever having to share passwords or change passwords, and there's no need for it to like pass files back and forth or do anything. So then they also mentioned that, let's see, the devices have the ability... Okay, yeah, they have the enterprise solution, yeah. And basically, we support an offline administrator recovery key, which can be kept in a physically separated location like a safe, and users will get warned when that key is enabled. And I assume that's, and since that's optional, you want to make sure if you're going to, if you think you might ever need that, you probably may want to actually enable it, particularly if you're the one running your own small private next cloud setup. Right. So what this like is, is by default, each user is going to have their own passcode, their 12 dictionary word passcode, and it's going to be tied to their Nextcloud account. So by default, each user needs to remember their password. If they forget their password, then they're locked out of their files. What this offline administrator recovery key does is it allows you as the runner of the Nextcloud server to have a secondary password that will also decrypt everyone's files for every account on the server. Of course, that can be a downside because if you're worried about your server getting taken over, um, if that administrator recovery key falls into the wrong hands, then they're going to be able to get into everyone's files. That's why users get warned about it when the key is enabled so that they know whoever's running this server is going to have access to their files. Um, but if you don't have that enabled, then if a user forgets the password, they can't get into anything ever again. So you can pick yeah. security or convenience there. Because it might be handy if you're having a small setup that's just you, you may want that recovery key available just in case you ever seriously screw something up so you don't lose data that you consider like important and want to get back. Right. But at the same time, you may not want that if you're afraid that someone may be targeting, like may target your data specifically and want it later. And then they just mentioned the complete audit log again. Yeah, you kind of skipped the bullet point there. I think is most uh, important about this. They rely exclusively on client-side encryption uh, the server never has any access to unencrypted keys or unencrypted data. And with a lot of these things, you have um, only encrypted data on the server, but then the server is also storing your encryption keys, which if the server is storing the encryption keys, then it can just, you know, if somebody takes over the server, they can use the encryption keys to decrypt the data. Um, so this is really, it sounds like a really secure file storage solution based on how they've set it up. Yeah. It's just you do have the issue if you lose all the clients and you don't have that option set, you're done right. <laughs> in terms of ever like getting your data back. 
but that's always kind of, I guess, been a compromise you have to make one way or the other. So then they kind of mentioned some use cases. Um, they say they say that it offers full protection of your data, making it suitable for almost of your private information, including like a copy of your passport, passwords, driver license, bank account information. I'm not mm -hmm. sure I'd trust that necessarily all to it, but if it's encrypted, they seem pretty. Yeah, they seem if, pretty the, if it's encrypted and the encryption works, the idea is you could put literally whatever you want in here. And it's already, you know, I would upload a copy of my driver's license to my Nextcloud account before I'd ever do that to my Google account. Because if I upload it to yeah. Google Drive, Google's got it. Nextcloud already put that in your control by having it on a server you control. And then this is adding either, even another layer of security there. I would totally trust this, you know, if the encryption works and is reliable. And yeah, really, this yeah, is also it's not quite as much in your control if it's say on a, like a Linode or DigitalOcean. Right, server, and in that case, that is... that's exactly what I that was what I was gonna say next. But I was thinking yeah. about maybe wait until later. This is really helpful for people who run NextCloud on a DigitalOcean droplet or a Linode, you know, somebody else's server. If it's encrypted and you're the only one who has the keys, then Linode or DigitalOcean cannot get into your stuff. You know, right now, if I set up a NextCloud yeah. server on DigitalOcean, they can see all my files. Um, I still trust DigitalOcean more than Google, but they can yeah. see all my files nonetheless. With this client-side encryption, the server never sees, once again, it never sees the unencrypted data, it never sees the keys, so they can't see my stuff. I can be safe putting that on servers, even if somebody else is running the server. Yeah. So then they kind of go into specific data or specific information related to the cryptographic identity protection feature that they wrote. Yeah. And, um, they kind of just describe every user gets a unique public-private key combination upon the first use of the end-to-end -end encryption. Basically, the public key is sent to the server and signed to a certificate, and this is checked by the user's other clients and by other users to share encrypted files. That's I feel like that's fairly common and typical of a full end-to-end -end encryption system, so that's not like anything unique they did. But um, Yeah, so basically when have the reminder. Yeah, when you log in for the first time and with this feature activated, you're going to get a pop-up like it shows on the screen that's got your 12-word recovery key. It tells you to write it down and keep it somewhere safe. That's what it means. Every user gets a unique mm -hmm. public-private key combination upon first use. Yeah. You can see what that is right there. And then they say how kind of by default keys can't change, just to protect the identity of users from hacking when the server is compromised. Yeah. And um, the certificate can be optionally issued by a hardware security module, which would be more done in an enterprise situation if a user lost their keys and you want to recover it and change it to a different key in a secure way. And then the current state of this, they just say basically this is a release of a proof of concept and it's kind of their first preliminary like implementation. Right now they have a server component working, it's the Android app, the desktop iOS client coming soon. And that's just, I mean, since they have, they have like, said they're going to go with this it's going to be in 13 so yeah basically they're just kind of reminding that this is just the beginning mm -hmm. they have a design document posted on github yes that has like if you want to i guess use this as an api or connect to it as a developer and um they have code at the a link to the server app the php code that does it does the decryption there which i guess does mean for a second it is decrypted in memory and then it is sent over i would hope you'd be using ssl but it is sent over then HTTP when um, in a decrypted state. So basically there is kind of at that one point it is unsecured, but it would probably be over SSL and it is like, it'd be pretty hard to get into the memory of the server. Since right. generally the apps have like the processes are protected. You'd have to have some other vulnerability in your like kernel for someone to be able to exploit that probably. Mm -hmm. 
But one key thing is they don't actually they uh, they talk about files here, but someone actually in the comments pointed out they don't ever talk about contacts or some of the other like information that you might want to keep. Yeah, I did read that comment. Um, now, and of course, so, if your contacts and calendar, if those things are stored in the files of your NextCloud, then that's going to be covered. Um, but if it's stored, I believe it's stored in a SQL database for your NextCloud install. And that's, of course, not going to be encrypted with this. Yeah. And I wonder, they probably will eventually try and do that because I'd imagine that's a key feature people are going to want down the road as well. Yeah. But I think they just wanted to, I feel like probably that'd be easier to do end-to-end -end encryption on probably than mm. files, especially if it's stored in a SQL Well, I mean, they're, here they're talking about how they have Android clients and whatnot. Their Android client doesn't have a calendar app or a contacts app. Like, that That stuff oh. is pretty... That's <laughs> yeah. one of the reasons I stopped using NextCloud is because they got all these half-baked apps that you can access through the web interface, um, but they don't... You know, you can't sync that stuff to your desktop very well, um, and it really, really is all half-baked. Sometimes NextCloud officially says they're official apps. Sometimes it's the community needs to update them. It's... I, I don't put a whole lot of stock in NextCloud's apps, but this does uh, make me a lot more excited about their file syncing capability. Yeah. And yeah, like Richard said, if you want to look at the actual specs of this, um, they've got the code on GitHub, and there is actually a request for comments document on their GitHub page that does detail how they're doing all of this if you do want to read more about it in a technical sense. That will be in the description below. All right, and our next story is Sue Studio merges with Open Build Service. I actually found out about this this week before I even read the news article. Uh, have you ever used Sue Studio, Richard? No. All right, have you heard of it? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, back in the day, like 2012, oh, no, 2013, Claire. what's that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Back in the day, I, I found Sue Studio. It's a really, it used to be a really cool website. It's still kind of neat. You can make your own Linux distribution. And ZDNet says you can build your own Linux distro without being a Linux expert. That's basically what it is. It's a click-through. You can rebrand OpenSUSE and customize it and make your own spin really easily through a really cool web console. Um, it was really neat. I knew people who used it to make their own distributions. Um, there was one called Eggplant OS that was made by somebody who was like pretty rude to me actually back then, but now they're channel is dead and mine's still going so i'm okay with talking about him but um, but yeah i uh i i've got some nostalgia from sue studio and i actually broke it out this week because nerd on the street is working on a skit right now for a creative channel making fun of system 76's pop os and so i wanted to make a knots os um to make fun of everyone making their own linux distros right so i headed on over to <laughs> sue studio and I actually made the distro a couple weeks ago, and then today I went and finished it up. But I'm glad I made it a couple weeks ago, because if you go to Sue Studio now, you'll see a notice on the website that you can't actually make new distros anymore on it, uh, because it's been deprecated. They are updating Sue Studio by merging it with their much more popular open build service to create a better tool called Sue Studio Express. Um, so... The reason they're merging these is because the default engine for building images at SUSE is called Kiwi. It was already used in both SUSE Studio and OBS, and they have decided to merge the two uh, because they were already using the same tool, so they figured they might as well just put them together. Uh, underlying, they were already using the same technology. So there are going to be some upsides to this. For one thing, SUSE Studio had not been updated in years. When I visited it recently, um, half of the login options didn't work. You know, like sign in with your Novell account, um, which D Novell doesn't even own SUSE anymore, so 
I tried to log in with my Novell account, that didn't work. I had to sign in with Google to get it to work. But um, the website was very antiquated. But yeah, this new Sue Studio Express, hopefully it'll have a better website because they're developing the website, the front end from scratch. Um, in addition though, it is going to have collaboration on image building so you can make Linux distros with friends. Uh, it's going to have support for additional architectures. Sue Studio right now only handles 8664, which is 64-bit. Um, I think back when I used to use it, it also supported 32-bit, but right now it's only 64-bit. Sue Studio Express is going to support all SUSE architectures. So that's 32-bit and 64-bit, also ARM, Power, and IBM Z as well, which I think back when I used it, they also had ARM in SUSE Studio. So it sounds like they're just undeprecating it basically with some of this. The new SUSE Studio Express is going to have more open development, the complete source code for it's available. The OpenSUSE build service will be made more flexible, or the open build service. And then image development can also be done as part of distribution development. So this is going to be easier to use to make actual distributions rather than just OpenSUSE spins. Um, so this is really cool in a lot of ways, I think. SUSE Studio Express is in beta right now. Here's the drawback to it. If you visit it right now, you can't do anything. This is the website. It's got an OpenSUSE logo at the top. Welcome to Studio Express and there's no button to make a distro. There's a link to Sue Studio, and it, I think what's going on here is they've got the back end already in place, but there's no web front end. If you go to suestudio.com, um, you can sign in and actually manage your, your stuff on the website, whereas Studio Express, there's no login button, there's no sign up button. They haven't made the front end yet. So right now, this is unusable to me, because I just wanted to make a Linux distribution as a joke, Richard, to go alongside a video, you know? I didn't want to actually yeah. make a distro, so I don't actually want to learn the tools to do this. That's why I went to Sue Studio in the first place. Um, they say it is going to be ready for all users in the fourth quarter of 2017. So, uh, yeah. I look forward to seeing, I think this could be really cool if they make it as easy to use as Sue Studio. Um, I'm actually gonna, here, I'm gonna go to, yeah, here's my Sue Studio instance right now, actually. Here's what Sue Studio looks like. So, I can go to Sue Studio Home. And this is what my account is right now. You can see under appliances, I've got Knots OS here. You can go in and when we select the appliance, we can name it. We can go to our software tab and check this out, Richard. Um, once this loads here, it actually lets you select each individual package from the OpenSUSE repository you want to include. So you can have your favorite web browser pre-installed. You can have your favorite games pre-installed. You can see I have like all of the KDE and GNOME games pre-installed here. And then I've uh, got very little else in my particular Knots OS distro, because like I said, joke distribution is supposed to be fun. Uh, you can go into your configuration. You can set up your default users. Um, you can set up your default desktop background, you can see. So it's like, you know, if you're actually making a distro, this isn't for making distros. This is for rebranding OpenSUSE, like I said. Um, I don't know, I thought this was really neat. You never got into this kind of thing? Yeah, I've never done it, but it looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah you, you can get it when you get to this and build tab. Go ahead. And now that they're improving it, like, yeah. with, well, I would think I'll actually really want to check out the Express one when they release it. Yeah, definitely. You can get to the build tab, and now I can build an ISO image, um, and bam, I've got my own respin of, of SUS. And you can even, when this was, it was kind of weird, when you're making a new appliance, you can base it off of either OpenSUSE or SUS Enterprise. And by that way, you could kind of use SUS Enterprise without having a license for it. So that was always interesting as well. Um, so yeah, if they don't make a front end, 
that matches to Studio, then I'm not going to be very happy with Studio Express. And I understand. Uh, random dude in our chat room is asking right now, what's the point of this? This being Sue Studio, there's not much of a point. It's just to make fun little respins for me. Um, of course, if you've got a company that is large enough to where you're wanting an actual custom branded OpenSUSE, um, or now if you're making embedded devices and you need preset packages pre-installed, yeah, you, you can do it through Sue Studio. So yeah, I, I can't tell if they're changing their target audience with this Studio Express or if they're just really making it better like you said. I hope they're just making it better and I look forward to the new UI. And our final story this week is Kwin slash Wayland has real-time support. I thought this was kind of interesting. Did you get a chance to read through this article yet? No. All right, so this so is a- I will follow along and be yeah. enlightened as well. This is a blog post from one of the KDE developers, and I follow this blog because I think it's kind of interesting. This developer in particular is doing a lot of work on KDE and Wayland, which is where I learned about the problems with NVIDIA and Wayland. Uh, but today, this developer, Martin Grasslin, uh, launched a change in KWIN master branch to enable real-time scheduling for KWIN on Wayland. The idea behind this change is to keep the graphical system responsive at all times, no matter what other processes are doing. And just from that description, I think this is a pretty cool thing that they're doing. This reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've heard this, but I got into Retro Max a few years back, and Mac OS 9, did you ever use that? Um, I've seen it. I've used it like maybe 20 minutes. I haven't really used it in depth. Alright, one of the cool things about Mac OS 9 was that it didn't have complete multitasking yet. Uh, which on the face sounds bad, but it was kind of neat because if your computer was doing some really heavy stuff for the time, um, of course, you know, heavy stuff back then my computer could do in zero seconds or less, but, um, but yeah, if you were doing really complicated stuff that was slowing your computer down on Mac OS 9, but you opened up a system menu, everything grinds to a halt when you open up a menu. And it opens the menu immediately, no matter what you're doing. Um, and you can navigate through the menu, you know, because it can't do two things at once, it's not going to have the powerful task in the background, um, interrupting calls to move your mouse around and open menus and things like that. Now, of course, we want multitasking in modern operating systems. We're not going yes. to go back to single task operating systems. But it would still be really nice if my if my desktop environment was unaffected yeah. by yeah by other applications taking a lot of resources and freezing. So this is what they're trying to do here. Um, and what they say, they explain, while Linux's scheduler that's built in is completely fair and should provide a fair amount of time to KWIN, it could render the system hard to use depending on the situation because all input and rendering events need to go through KWIN. Um, so one situation they give is if one or two processes are running amok and one, uh, you as the user want to switch to a virtual terminal to kill the processes, the key combination for that is Control-Alt-F1 or F-whatever, right? Um, but in order to do that, it needs to go through KWIN because KWIN handles all input. So if your computer's frozen and KWIN is not receiving any time because another process is taking up all of the CPU time, then there's going to be a very long delay before you can control F2 into another virtual terminal. I've run into that issue myself. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of going to avoid that a little bit more. Um, KWIN is only taking the CPU if there's a reason for it, so this should not have any bad side effects, is what the developer is saying. 
um, because KWIN shouldn't be wasting CPU usage on nothing. It should only be requesting CPU time if there's an input event or a window requesting a repaint, things like that. But by doing this, by setting KWIN to real-time scheduling, we can ensure that all input events and all rendering events are handled in a timely manner, which is going to make your system appear that much more responsive. Now, there is, um, yeah, they point out that right now it's possible to launch other programs in real time, such as games or video players, but they raise a very good point. If KWIN is what is collecting input events and sending renders to your screen, what's the point of launching a game in real time if the desktop environment's not in real time? Because if the desktop yeah. environment lags, the game's going to look like it's lagging too, even if it's, you know, it yeah, might be the, the desktop environment. Yeah, lagging and right. be like unusable. So you might as well, you're not going to hurt anything, you're not going to be making anything worse by setting the desktop environment to real time. Um, now, of course, sometimes there are things that should actually be higher priority than the desktop environment in certain cases. So to support that, KWIN is requesting real time, but it's only requesting the minimum real time priority. So any other real time processes in the system are still going to be considered more important than KWIN. It's not, it's not setting itself as the most important, it's just setting itself as more important than your average everything else. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, now this change is in the master branch. It is not going to be part of the upcoming 5.11 Plasma release. Um, and that means that they have the maximum time span until it ends up in a release. So they're going to have plenty of time to test it. This is also on Wayland once again. But yeah, I just thought that was an interesting development that is definitely going to make KWIN and Plasma seem very responsive once it does get um, to the point where we're all using Wayland. All right, Richard, that's all of our stories for this week, and I do think we had a nice long show this week. Before we go, I do just want to mention, if you liked this show and you want to see more episodes of this and other shows like it, you can go to nerdclub.nots.co, that's nerdclub.nots.co, and support Nerd on the Street by becoming a part of our Nerd Club. It's only $3 a month. You can join through Patreon, or you can join through our website uh, for a one-time fee if you don't want a recurring thing. But, you know, Patreon, lots of people use it, completely safe. You can join that, like I said, $3 per month. Um, in return, you can access the live stream DVR, see completely uncut versions of all of our live streams, uncut recordings. You can get into the members-only area on our website and our Discord server. Uh, and you can browse our website with absolutely zero banner ads as well. Um, so all those things are very nice. And you're also supporting Nerd on the Street if you want to see more videos like this once again, because the more income we receive from the nerd club the less time we have to do doing completely un linux related things to make money to support ourselves so nerdclub.nots.co and a big thank you to all of our current nerd club members and with that that is just about everything we had to talk about this week once again uh hey richard if people liked you in this show they want to see more of you where can they go throughout the week um at glorif22 on twitter g-l-o-r-i-f-22 or richardsprojects.net is my blog all right. And you can find me on Twitter at JacobGKAU, but I don't tweet very often. You're better off just going to nerdonthestreet.com and leaving a post in the forums if you want to reach me. Uh, for now, though, like I said, that's everything. We'll see you all here back next week. Keep using Linux, everyone, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye.